Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. Tonight we are in Proverbs chapter 17. Tonight is officially the last Wednesday service for GCA for the year of 2019. And I will make an announcement to let you know which Wednesday after the first of the year we are going to start reconvening. So I hope everybody has some good Wednesdays. Tom and I will probably go out visiting for a while, go visit some churches and I don't often get to go to church and listen to somebody else speak, so I look forward to those occasions when I get to. In the NASB, which is what I am reading out of, the translators of the NASB offer little topic headings that they think are accurate. And at the beginning of chapter 17, it says, a contrast between the upright and the wicked which, by the way, is about as generic as a topic heading in the book of Proverbs can get. The whole book is kind of like that. It's kind of a contrast between the upright and the wicked. Actually, to me, in reading it, the theme seems to be a contrast between strife and peace. Granted, that's a very general overview topic for this chapter because it does jump around a bit. But it starts right off with one of Solomon's this is better than that statements. And the statement is that it's better to have peace than to be at strife. If you're arguing in your own home, if you're arguing with your friends, if you're arguing with the people you're living with or eating with or together with, that kind of strife, that kind of contention is much worse than being by yourself sitting with a morsel of bread in quietness is better than a house full of feasting, which is why I said you get your family together, you get your friends together. After all, Thanksgiving is right around the corner and you get all the people together and you're having a great big feast, but there's contention and there's strife and there's arguing. Then uh, Solomon says it's better off to just sit by yourself And just have a dry morsel, which just means a little piece of dry gag on it bread that you're looking for water. That's still a better meal than a feast with arguing people. And I think we would all agree it's never fun no matter how good the food is and no matter where you get to eat. It's never good to be in the company of people who are constantly argumentative. And that, I think, kind of sets up the general theme for the rest of this chapter, that contrast between peace and strife. Look at verse 2. In order to understand verse 2 or to understand it better, we're first going to look at verse 21 of this same chapter. I think verse 21 kind of sets the stage in order to understand verse 2. Verse 21 says, He who begets a fool... In other words, he who is parent to a fool. He who begets a fool does so to his sorrow. 
This is one of Solomon's themes again that comes up time and time again in the book of uh, Proverbs that he keeps saying that a child who is foolish brings all kinds of pain and sadness to his parents. A man who is wise, a man who has understanding, is a man who is God-fearing, and what a shame it is when he raises up when he raises up a child who doesn't have that same insight, that same knowledge, that same love of God. So he places it at, he who begets a fool does so to his own sorrow, and the father of a fool has no joy. If you're the father of a fool, if you see your son out there being the fool, playing the fool, acting the fool, and you realize that his life, according to everything else we've seen in Proverbs, his life is not going to go well for him. He's always going to be a contention with other people. He's going to end up differing with people. He's going to end up dividing friends. He's going to use his tongue for all kinds of damage. Well, that means that his father is going to watch him go down that terrible path And that's never going to bring joy to a father who loves a son and watches the son destroy himself. Now, look down at verse 25. A foolish son is a grief to his father. Not only does a fool make his father sorrowful, but a foolish son brings grief, heartache to his father and brings bitterness to her who bore him. So his father and mother are grieving over the fact that they have raised a foolish son. Okay, now that gives you some idea of what Solomon thinks of a foolish child, a foolish son. And verse 2 is really going to drive that point home by saying that a servant, so not a child of the parents, not somebody who's an immediate member of the family, A servant who's just simply serving well in a household, that servant who acts wisely will end up ruling over a foolish son. So if you're a parent and you have a foolish son, it's actually more beneficial to you to have just a lowly servant in the house, not even a member of the family, who is wise... And he's going to end up getting greater reputation. He's going to get greater honor in the house than the foolish son. So a servant who acts wisely will rule over a son who acts shamefully. So a son who acts shamefully brings bitterness to his mother, brings grief to his father, And his father was never going to have any joy. So you can see why a servant who actually brings the father joy, you can see why a servant who actually has wisdom, who serves well, is going to end up in high regard in the family. You see demonstrations of that even all the way back to Abraham, who when he had no children, told God that this servant in his household, this Eliezer of Damascus, was going to inherit all that he had. So he was taking this servant and treating him as a son. Solomon says a wise servant is going to end up ruling over a foolish son. So much so, the second half of that verse says, and he will share in the inheritance among the brothers. So let's say that there's a man who has several sons. And one of them is just a flat fool. 
But he also has a servant who serves well, who serves faithfully, and who has wisdom, who makes good decisions, who rules the man's house well. When the time comes to divide up the inheritance, Solomon says he's more likely to divide the inheritance among the wise sons and the servant rather than giving that inheritance to a fool. A servant who acts wisely will rule over a son who acts shamefully and will share in the inheritance among brothers. So the big picture is a wise servant is better than a foolish son. Verse 3 then, we actually looked at last week. It says the refining pot is for silver and the furnace is for gold, but God tests the hearts. And we talked about that to some great extent last week to say that the refining pot and the furnace are for the purpose of smelting silver and gold in order to remove the impurities from it in the same way God is going to refine those people who belong to him and he's going to do that through the circumstances that he takes you through as he's testing, trying your heart, as he's removing the impurities, as he's showing you that you have to be completely dependent on him to get through the difficulties of this life. Solomon says that kind of difficulty in your life is actually a way of God refining you the same way that a silversmith refines silver. The refining pot is for silver, the furnace is for gold, but the Lord tests the hearts. Verse 4 then, an evildoer listens to wicked lips. An evildoer, somebody who's intent on doing evil, somebody who's wicked in their heart, one of the things that he does is he listens to other people who have wicked thoughts, who say wicked things, people who are saying destructive and painful things. An evildoer is going to pay attention to that. And a liar, a dishonest person, pays attention to a destructive tongue. This is, again, one of those themes that we see in the book of Proverbs where Solomon keeps going back to watch your tongue, watch what you say, watch how you talk. And he says it is an evildoer and a liar, a dishonest man who's actually going to listen to somebody who has dishonesty on their lips, somebody who has destructive language. Honest people aren't going to listen to that. People who have a righteous heart, people who are looking after the things of God and care about the things of God, they're not going to listen to that. But a wicked person is going to listen. In Los Angeles, it seemed like every street corner had some nutcase on it, on a soapbox somewhere preaching. But what was more amazing was that there were always five other nutcases listening to him. Everybody can find somebody who will pay attention to them. And misery loves company. And so somebody who is inherently evil, who is inherently destructive, who starts talking, will find an audience, but his audience will be liars and evildoers. So Solomon warns that the people who listen to wicked lips are evildoers. You can read that forward or backward. An evildoer listens to wicked lips, and the fact that he listens to wicked lips shows that he's an evildoer. A liar pays attention to a destructive tongue. Look at verse 7 for just a moment. Excellent speech 
is not fitting for a fool. You never hear a fool just stand up and suddenly wax eloquently and say great wise things that need to be heard. But the second half of that verse says, much less are lying lips fitting for a prince. So he's saying if you're a ruler, if you're a prince, if you rule over people, it's necessary that you have honest lips, not lying lips. One translation tried to get a more literal rendering of the lying lips phrase, and they rendered it lips of excess. They see in the Hebrew phrase here that what it means is people who talk too much and as a consequence end up having to say things that just aren't true. Because if you're just talking endlessly and you're not taking in information, you're not paying attention to other people and their wisdom, then you're just going to start spouting things that just are not true simply by virtue of your excessive talking. That kind of lying excessive talking, Solomon says, is not appropriate for somebody who rules over other people. That kind of person, that kind of ruler, ought to have excellent speech, good speech, proper speech, God-fearing speech, speech that raises people up, that encourages people, that drives people forward. That's what's appropriate for a prince, and that's why you won't see a fool doing it. But you also should never see a prince with lips of excess. Look for a moment, since we said that, over verse 27 of the same chapter, verses 27 and 28. Hey, look, we got to the end of the chapter already. That was quicker than what I expected. I know, impressive. Look at verse 27. He who restrains his words has knowledge. He's demonstrating the fact that he's knowledgeable. He's demonstrating the fact that he has wisdom by the very fact that he restrains his words. Okay, that would be the opposite of lips of excess. People who talk excessively are bound to lie because they're talking so much. So it would be wisdom then to just restrain your words. And he who has, now the NASB here says, he who has a cool spirit which I think is a very hip phrase. I know. It's, hey, he who has a cool spirit. But he means someone who's not hot-headed. Someone who doesn't just go off on an instant. Someone who isn't quick-tempered. Somebody who isn't immediate with his words to tell you what he thinks. And he's constantly offended and he's constantly put out by everything. That's what he means when he says somebody who is of a cooler temperament of an easier temperament, that is a man of understanding. So a man of understanding and knowledge has a quiet temperament, a cool spirit, and he restrains his words. He's careful with the things he says. How many times have we seen that? That he takes the time to think before he speaks. That he takes the time to consider whether his words are going to be productive and uplifting words. He who restrains his words demonstrates that he has knowledge. He who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. And even a fool, when he keeps quiet, is considered wise. What's the phrase? It's better to keep your mouth shut and let people assume you're a fool rather than open your mouth and remove all doubt. 
There's a story. I don't know if it's an apocryphal story. I have heard it ever since my college days. A professor in college that was trying to say basically the same thing, that it's better to listen than to speak, recited a story that had to do with Winston Churchill. And he said that Churchill, who was a great orator, who was a a great teller of stories and stuff, he went to a party where he decided that he was not going to speak at all. And so he just went about and let people talk to him. And everybody likes to talk about themselves. And so he just listened as people talked about themselves. And the next day, there was a social column in the paper that ran, since these were the days before television and the days before uh, internet or anything like that. And so people would pick up the paper each day and they would read the social column to find out what the well-to-do were doing. And apparently that column glowed excessively about what a great conversationalist Winston Churchill was. Mm. And that night, he had made a point of not speaking at all. So even a fool, not Winston Churchill, but even a fool when he keeps silent is considered wise because it's just smarter to have control over your tongue, to have control over your temperament, to have control over how you're affecting people and just restrain your words. You don't need to always speak everything that goes through your silly head. Even a fool, when he keeps silent, is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he's counted as prudent. Now, the word counted in the NASB is added by the translators. Actually, what it says closer in the Hebrew is, he who closes his lips, he's prudent. So even a fool who knows enough not to talk is demonstrating some amount of prudence. And as I keep stating over and over again, if you're talking, you're not learning anything. I guess I shouldn't say that while I'm right in the middle of doing all the talking. But if you're constantly babbling on about everything to everybody, you're not taking in any new information. And so at some point, you're just going to run out of what you know. And then the stuff you're going to say is just the stuff you're making up. You're just going to start having to tell tales, which is exactly why verse 7 would tell us that the lips of excess end up being lying lips. Talk too much, you're going to lie. A prudent man, a wise man, constrains his tongue, constrains his words. That takes us to verse 5. This is very much like what we've been reading on Sunday mornings out of the book of Romans. We were seeing, except a weaker brother into your assembly, Bring them in, but not for the purpose of making fun of them, not for the purpose of mocking their opinions. Well, now Solomon says, he who mocks the poor reproaches his maker, which is very, very interesting because that means that Solomon understands that humankind is made by God, is a creation of God, and because all humans are made by God, They are made by a sovereign, and if you start mocking what God himself has made, you're actually mocking the maker. Mm. 
And so it's another reason, another inspiration for being good to people, where Jesus would even say, love your enemies, while Jesus would say to pray for those who spitefully use you. This concept, this idea of being kind to everybody, being a good representative of God on earth, just permeates the scripture I don't know why it is. Well, I do know why it is. It's because of human pride and ego. But it seems like at some point we Christians who keep seeing this in the Bible over and over again, at some point it would just kind of permeate our conscience and we would realize that this is God's expectation for us, that wherever we are and whatever we're doing, that we're just generally kind to people. And we don't look down on people just because they don't have the same success in life that we do. Somebody who is poor, that may be a calamity that's not even of their own making, and yet the common human impulse is to mock them, to make fun of them. But you don't know their backstory, you don't know how they ended up there, and Solomon says if you mock those people, you're actually reproaching God himself who made those people. And I would advance that idea even further and say, and if God is absolutely sovereign, then God is in control of the fact that they are poor right now. He's taking them through this time of difficulty for his own purpose. And so if you are mocking the poor, you're mocking the purposes of a sovereign God who made them and who is taking them through it. Mm. So you need to, what's that word? Restrain your tongue. It all kind of goes back to that. He who mocks the poor reproaches his maker. He who rejoices at calamity, that means making fun of somebody else because they're going through a difficult time. They have fallen on hard times. And he says, if you rejoice at someone else's calamity, that's not going to go unpunished. And I think since he just referred to God as the maker, he's saying God ultimately is going to correct you over that. Every son that he receives, he's going to correct. He's going to instruct those people because they are his sons. So you don't necessarily have to read verse 5 as they're going to go punished by being uh, sent into outer darkness or something. But if God loves you and if he's training you, if he's instructing you, then when you're working against him by mocking the poor or rejoicing in other people's calamity, he knows that that's not a good way to represent him or his glory or his mercy, kindness, and grace. And so therefore, if you are going to be his child and his representative on the planet, he's going to correct you. He's going to punish you if that's what it takes in order to correct you from doing those kind of things. Verse 6, grandchildren are the crown of old men. The word crown right there means it's a joy. It's something that's bestowed on them. It's an honor that's bestowed on them. Grandchildren, then, are an honor of old men, and the glory of sons is their father. So in that one little couplet, Solomon has described the human family. And he is saying that the glory of sons is their fathers, a good and a wise father who has raised them up and fed them and taken care of them. They're very fortunate to have had that in their life, and therefore their father is their glory. But then the son turns around and has children, and that becomes a crown to the grandfather. 
So he's really describing the interworkings of the family unit the way that God intends it to be. Grandchildren are a crown of old men, and the glory of sons is their fathers. Then verse 7, which we've already looked at, excellent speech is not fitting for a fool, much less are lips of excess appropriate for a prince. Verse 8 then sounds like, on the surface, if you just read it in passing, it sounds like it's saying something positive about bribes, but Solomon has already told you that a bribe is evil. So he's speaking from the perspective of somebody who is out trying to bribe people. And he writes, a bribe is a charm in the sight of its owner. So the person who's doing the bribing sees the bribe as like a charm, the same way that a snake charmer charms a snake, the same way that he captures the snake's attention in order to charm him. The person who is going around bribing people thinks that that bribe is like a a charm that he can wave in front of people and they'll go, oh, yes, I'll do your bidding. And all too often that actually happens, which is why Solomon speaks of how princes should not take bribes in order to be swayed in their opinions. But the person who's doing the bribing thinks it is a charm in the sight of his owner, and he thinks wherever he turns, he prospers. If you go around putting money in people's hands, if you go around charming people with favors and promises and things that you can do for them to promote them, the person who does something like that, their opinion is that that bribe is going to prosper them no matter where they turn. I think we already know from Solomon's other writing about a bribe that that kind of bribery ultimately ends up with people who don't trust you, ends up with you looking for friends because nobody's actually trusting you or believing you. They're always just looking for a handout. They're not going to do anything for you without you paying them first. But in the mind of the briber, it's like a charm. And wherever he turns, he's going to prosper. Look at verse 23 for just a moment, because that also speaks about bribes. And it'll give you a greater sense of what Solomon thinks about bribes. Verse 23 says, a wicked man receives a bribe from the bosom. So the man who is doing the bribing thinks that he's charming somebody. But if he can charm somebody into doing him whatever the favor is to help prosper him, the person who's accepting that bribe is a wicked man. So that gives you some idea what Solomon thinks of bribery. If you take a bribe, you're a wicked man. A wicked man receives a bribe from the bosom to pervert the ways of justice. Remember that Solomon is a king, so that means that he is a judge. And I'm sure that he, like every cop out there on the street, at some point has had somebody say, well, what if I give you a little something? What if I give you a little money? What if I make you a little richer? What if I give you something? Would you be willing to change your view on justice for me? Solomon says that's wicked. So between verse 23 and verse 8, we see the two sides of the bribery scheme. The briber sees it as a charm, and he thinks wherever he turns, he's going to prosper. But verse 23 tells us that it's a wicked man who takes it. 
and especially if he would take it to pervert the ways of justice. So justice has to be meted out appropriately, which is also why Solomon talks so much about treating poor people justly and fairly, because they wouldn't have a bribe. They wouldn't know how to bribe anyone. So justice has to be fair. It has to be equal. It has to be blind. And I say that in front of a legal secretary. So you agreed to all that? Oh, yes. Okay, good. I'm so glad. Verse 9. Verse 9 also has to do with how you treat each other. In this case, how you treat a friend, a brother. He who covers a transgression seeks love. But he who repeats a matter separates intimate friends. The separating of friends, the separating of intimate friends happens when you repeat a matter. So the contrast is, if you want love and if you love somebody, you're going to cover their transgressions. If they do something wrong, if they do something that you could go out and gossip about and hurt their reputation, if you cover it instead, if you act in their defense by keeping their secret then that's a way to create love between friends and brethren. But if you gossip about it, if you repeat that matter, that's going to damage them, that's going to hurt them, and when you do that, that separates intimate friends. Look at verse 17. Solomon defines what he means by what a real friend is. He said, a friend loves at all times. Just a moment ago, he said, he who covers transgressions seeks love. So a real genuine friend is somebody that you can trust. You can trust with your secrets. And you know that it's not somebody who's going to hurt you with the things that you have said. And a brother, says the second half of verse 17, a brother is born for adversity. In other words, he was brought into your life. He was raised up. He's here at this particular time to help you get through the difficulties of life. He's born for adversity. So a friend loves at all times, which is why you're able to trust him with your secrets. And if you do transgress, that kind of friend is going to cover it. He's going to keep that secret. But... Some people cannot keep secrets for the life of them, and they end up going out and repeating the matter, telling anybody they can tell about it, gossiping, backbiting, whatever you want to call it. And as a consequence, that separates intimate friends, not just friends, but close friends, friends that were closer than brethren. You can separate them by telling them that you know something about the other one, and the other one said something bad about you, and the other one did, and didn't you know? And next thing you know, there's differences and arguments and fights between people who once upon a time were close, intimate friends. He who covers a transgression seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates intimate friends. A rebuke, a correction goes deeper into one who has understanding. That's just a fact of life. If you have understanding, if you have wisdom, if you have the knowledge that Solomon's been talking about all the way through this book, 
then you have a depth of understanding. You have a depth of character in you. And so if somebody comes along and rebukes you, if somebody comes along and says you're wrong and this is why you're wrong, that can cut you to the quick. You can really feel that, especially if it's coming from somebody who you really trust. If it's coming from a close friend, if it's coming from somebody who you know has your best interest at heart and they come and rebuke you, that can just really sometimes be painful. A rebuke goes deeper into one who has understanding. But then by contrast, a hundred lashes go into a fool and he doesn't get it. The NASB says a hundred blows The Hebrew word may mean lashes. It means that you rebuke somebody who has understanding and you rebuke them once. It affects them. They understand it. They take the lesson. But a fool won't take a rebuke. A fool, no matter how many times you rebuke him, which Solomon likens to lashing him a hundred times, he doesn't feel it. But somebody with wisdom feels it with just a rebuke. That's the contrast. Verse 11 says, a rebellious man seeks only evil. Again, you can read that forward or backwards. An evil man seeks rebellion. A rebellious, angry, contentious, never happy man. What he's going to seek is not the welfare of other people. He's not going to seek the good of other people. He's going to look for any kind of evil that he can bring to other people. That's what's going on in his heart. And a cruel messenger then will be sent to him. The cruel messenger there probably means like a cruel officer, a confidant of the king, somebody who has authority. Because that rebellious man is going to seek all kinds of evil. He's bad for a society. He's going to do all kinds of damage to people and to stuff in his rebellion. And so the person who's going to be sent by the king to go correct such a one, Solomon says, I'm not going to send my easy, get-along-to-go-along tender guy. I'm going to send a cruel messenger because he's a rebellious man. So the point Solomon is making is if you're going through this life in rebellion you can expect nothing but harsh correction a rebellious man seeks only evil so a cruel messenger will be sent to him verse 12 I just like Solomon's humor here let a man meet a bear robbed of her cubs What kind of mood is that bear going to be in? Super angry. Super angry. And on top of that, bear. Giant claws, big teeth, angry bear. Anybody who sees that coming at them, you got time for a joke? Sure, you got nowhere to be. There were two guys camping when they look out into the woods and they see a a bear bearing down on them running right toward them. One says, come on, run, come on, run. The other one sits down, takes off his boots, and starts putting on his tennis shoes. And the other one says, what are you doing? You're not going to outrun that bear? He says, I don't have to outrun the bear. I just have to outrun you. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Let a man meet 
a bear robbed of its cubs rather than meet a fool in his folly. It's better to be attacked by an angry mother bear than to have to put up with a fool in his foolishness. We all have it. We all have physical expressions. We all have voice expressions that we use. Have you ever found yourself going, you know, just putting your head in your hands like, oh, come on. That's what he's talking about. It's exasperating. It's tiring. As you watch foolish people say foolish things and do foolish things, you'd be better off meeting a bear who's robbed of her cubs than to have to be put through listening to a fool express his folly to you. And by the way, if you're in the company of a fool who is engaging in his folly, then we know from everything else that Solomon has said about fools and folly that he's engaging in evil in the society, which is going to be punished. So you're better off not to be there when that happens. You're better off, he's even said, don't keep company with fools. He's even said, depart from a fool. And so if you are with a fool in his folly, that's not going to go well for you. That's going to reflect on you. That's ultimately going to damage you. And so Solomon put it in a humorous phrase, or perhaps just a poignant phrase, by saying, let a man meet a bear robbed of her cubs, rather than a fool in his folly. He who returns evil for good, evil will not depart from his house. So if someone is good to other people, if someone is kind to other people, and I think we have all experienced this at one time or another, where you do something kind, you do something generous, you do something helpful for somebody else, and what they return to you is evil? Isn't that fun? Everywhere I go, whatever I'm involved in, if there's another person there, I try to acknowledge the other person. Because they are another human being, another person that God has made. And so I acknowledge that they exist. I don't just assume that the checkout person or the waiter or the guy changing my tires is uh, my servant or, or I can just ignore him as long as the work gets done. I try to be conscious all the time that this is another human being. He who returns evil for good, the consequence of that, if you're constantly being evil to people, Well, then evil's not going to depart from your house because you just are intrinsically evil. If you are treating good people who do good things for you, if you're treating them evil, you are demonstrating what is going on in your heart. You're demonstrating what your inner character actually is. You are evil. Otherwise, you wouldn't treat good people that way. And if you are evil, Solomon says, that's never going to leave your house. That evil is going to reside with you. Verse 14. The beginning of strife is like letting out water. So abandon the quarrel before it breaks out. The second half of that couplet helps us understand the first part of the couplet. He seems to be saying that if there is like a dam holding back water, and you see a leak in the dam where the water starts leaking out, you know what's about to happen. You know that eventually that dam's going to break away and there's going to be a flood. 
And so he says at the very beginning of strife, at the very beginning of arguing with somebody, of disagreeing with somebody, at the very beginning of it, it's like that dam that's just starting to leak. And if you saw that physically happening in a dam, you would know enough to get out of there. You would know enough to say, okay, that's about to explode, and it's not going to be good for me. I should stop this now. I should go somewhere else that's high and dry. So then he applies that principle to quarreling with people. Remember I said the large general theme of this chapter is strife and peace. The beginning of the strife is like the letting out of some water. So abandon the quarrel before it breaks out. Just the same way that the dam would break out. You know that once the quarrel starts, oh, here's that first trickle of water. I can see where this is going. I can see where this is going. I can see. Have you ever been in the middle of a fight with, oh, your spouse or your kid or your coworker, where you know from the first sentence, oh, this is probably going to be a fight. And yet some part of your silly head will stand there and defend yourself, and next thing you know, you're in a quarrel. Next thing you know, you're in an argument. Well, Solomon says, you can see that leaking coming. You can tell it's coming. And the best thing to do is abandon the quarrel, which is Solomon's way of saying, run away. Get away from the quarrel. You can see it coming. You can see the fight coming. Abandon it. Get out of it before it breaks out. Mm. This is Solomon's way of saying, make peace. You can see when the argument is coming. Therefore, work hard to just make peace and abandon the quarrel. Which we all, you can all think of times when you started the conversation with somebody and they said something back to you that kind of irked you and you had that moment where you thought, okay, now my next words are either going to escalate this right into an argument and we're going to stand here and scream at each other for the next 15 minutes. Or you have the option of saying something kind, bringing down the temperature of the room, just kind of accepting what they said and saying, okay, whatever, I own that. Okay, good. Well, that's what Solomon's saying is better. It's better to just abandon the argument. Oh, but we don't. Because we're so full of righteous indignation and ego and self-gratification, we think if anybody offends us, we've got to offend them back. And that is not abandoning the argument. That's standing there while the dam breaks. And I think you can see that Solomon's saying, that's the foolish way to go. Verse 15, he who justifies the wicked... And he who condemns the righteous, both of them alike are toyavah. Both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. Someone who knows the wickedness, sees the wickedness of someone else, and yet justifies it, well, they didn't mean it. Or, well, it's uh, for the ultimate good of somebody else over there. Just trying to give some excuse for why somebody does wicked things or why they remain in their wicked state or why they defend their own wickedness. If you justify that, you are an abomination to the Lord. But equally, if you condemn righteous people, if you see 
the uprightness of someone, if you see the honesty of somebody, and yet you as a talebearer, you who separates close friends, you who can't wait to do evil with your lips, if you start condemning somebody who's actually righteous, that is also an abomination to the Lord. So justify the righteous is the correct way to go about it, and condemn the wicked is the right way to go about it. But justifying the wicked and condemning the righteous, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. Why is there a price in the hand of a fool to buy wisdom when he has no sense? Basically what that means is a fool thinks that he can buy wisdom. A fool thinks that if he just convinces you enough that you are going to be able to give him or that he can purchase from you, some kind of wisdom, some kind of insight. But Solomon says here that you can't buy wisdom. Wisdom is something that is inherent. It is something that grows with the knowledge of God. It is something that grows with the fear of God. It is something that you gain through your life by listening to other people, paying attention to rebukes, growing from the ways that people correct you. That's how you get wisdom. It's not something you can buy and sell. It's not something you can trade And he says, so then a fool will come and think he can just buy some. Oh, okay, so if wisdom's that good, if I believe everything you've said, Solomon, so far, uh, so wisdom's a really good thing, so I guess I should get me some. Uh, I got 10 bucks. Can I get some wisdom? He says the only reason that a fool thinks he can buy it is because he's a fool. It's because he has no sense. He doesn't understand what wisdom even is if he thinks he can buy it. Plus, also, it comes across as a very funny pun if you replace the meaning of sense in that. I thought that and didn't go there. I thought it. Because I, I assume at this point in the evening, <laughs> as late as it's getting, that most people are just tired of my humor. Okay. Yeah. So, okay, fair enough. Really? Yeah. The gene pool has its way. Huh? <laughs> exactly. I can count on my son. A friend, verse 17, we've already looked at this. A friend loves at all times. A brother is born to go through adversity with you. That's what a real brother is. Have you ever had a friend that was closer than a brother? You ever had a friend that you just thought, man, you're family. You're right here with me. And usually that is the result of going through difficulty with each other. Lifting each other up, supporting each other, taking each other through hard times builds a bond. And that is a friend who then loves you at all times. Whether you're doing good, whether you're falling down, whether you're making a mistake, he'll cover, like we read earlier, he's going to cover your transgressions because he loves you. And a brother is there always, born for times of adversity. Verse 18, a man lacking in sense pledges... In other words, he says that he will become the surety, as the second half of this verse says. He becomes surety in the presence of his neighbor. Solomon has said this many times. As a very rich man, he talks a lot about money and how we should accumulate money through hard work and then store up for our children and for our children's children. He's very big into the proper use and growth of money. But then at the same time, he's saying, and this is a couple times now that he said it, that if you pledge to become surety for somebody else, that that lacks sense. That's not a proper thing to do. 
to go and say to a debt holder, somebody who is making a loan, if you say, yes, I guarantee you that Jeff will pay it back, and if he doesn't, I'll be his surety, because you don't know if Jeff is going to just run off to Mexico next week, and then you're left holding a debt that wasn't really your debt in the first place. And so he sees that wisdom would be that you not be that kind of surety. Let every man, if the man is honest, if the man is forthright, if the man is working, he can be surety for his own debts. He shouldn't need you to become his surety. A man lacking in sense pledges and becomes surety in the presence of his neighbor. He who loves transgression loves Strife, I told you, the overarching theme of this whole chapter is the difference between peace and strife. So now it comes up again. He who loves sin, he who loves transgression, he who loves going against the law, also just loves stirring things up and causing difficulty for other people. He loves to cause strife. And he who raises his door seeks destruction. Verse 20, he who has a crooked mind finds no good. And he who is perverted, interestingly, in his language falls into evil. Why would that be? Because if you're perverted in your language, that shows what's in your heart. Perversion is in your heart. Therefore, that's what comes out of your lips. And your lips bring about this sort of ugliness, this kind of perversion, this kind of talk that ought not be. That perverted language demonstrates that you are evil. Therefore, of course, you would fall into evil. So again, this is Solomon saying, watch your tongue. How many times has he said it now? I don't know how many weeks into reading the Proverbs we are, but Solomon keeps going back to this. And I assume that if something gets said in the Bible even once, It's because we just don't naturally know it or naturally do it. We need to be told. The reason we're told things like don't lie is because we have a tendency to lie. And so God had to put forward a commandment not to lie. Solomon had to say, watch your mouth, watch your mouth, watch your mouth, watch your mouth, over and over again. And he said it several different ways. Abandon a quarrel. Be careful with your much talking. You're better off to just be quiet and appear prudent by doing that. He just keeps saying it over and over again. That means it's a very big thing to Solomon. That means it's a very big thing to God since it's in God's word. God keeps telling us, watch what you say. And I think most of the damage that gets done between people, between friends or even just between acquaintances, the vast majority of the damage is what we say. Because you don't meet strangers on the street and just haul off and hit them. But you will say things. Sometimes you'll say a sarcastic thing. Sometimes you'll say something to kind of put them down. Sometimes you'll say, as Solomon said here, sometimes you'll look down on somebody who's poor and you'll maybe make fun of them. The damage is always what we say. And so Solomon keeps saying it over and over and over and over and over again. Be careful what you say. Has anybody been hurt by words lately in this room? Anybody had somebody say something to you that they thought, 
Well, that wasn't fair. Why would you say that? It's a regular part of what we all go through. Has anybody recently hurt anybody with their words? That's because of our pride, because of our sense of self-conceit, because of our sense of self-importance. We use our words to damage each other. And then we're damaging friends and relationships and intimacies that should be as strong as brothers. And yet we can break those bonds apart with our mouths, with our tongues, with our gossip, with the silly stuff that falls out of our face. Well, let's look at verse 20. He who has a crooked mind, a twisted mind, a perverted mind, finds no good. And he who is perverted in his language falls into evil. I would argue that the perverted language, as I've already been saying, is because his mind is crooked and twisted and no good. And you can read that forward or backward. You can read that as somebody who has a crooked, twisted mind is somebody who will use perverted language, but from the outside, you know that somebody who uses perverted language all the time has a twisted mind. That's why they're talking that way. Verse 21, we've already looked at. He who begets a fool does so to his sorrow, And the father of a fool has no joy. But then verse 22, we all kind of know this. A joyful heart is good medicine. And that's true. If you can go through your life with contentment and with thankfulness, with the joy of the Lord, with the joy of the knowledge that whatever happens to you in this life, sovereign God has got it. He's going to take you through it. He's going to give you, as we saw on Sunday morning, both the perseverance And the confidence to get through it. If you have that. If you know that. If you have a joyful heart. You actually get better. I won't go into this in any great detail. Because we have to go. But Janine and I have been watching a lot of videos lately. About this diet that we're on. And the benefits of this diet. And every time we watch any of these videos about the diet. They always say. But it's not just the food. That combination of reducing stress, which is the goal, and good food results in healthy people. And I would argue the good food results in healthy people, but I would also say lower stress results in healthy people. And we all know that. Stress is a killer. But a joyful heart is good medicine. But a broken spirit dries up the bones. So the contrast is obvious. Verse 23, a wicked man receives a bribe from the bosom to pervert the way of justice. We've already looked at that as we were talking about bribes. Wisdom is in the presence of the one who has understanding. In other words, wisdom is like right there in front of him. It's obvious to him. No matter where he looks, no matter what he's going through, he can draw information from it. He can draw wisdom and knowledge from it. No matter where he is, wisdom is always in his presence. It's always right there where he can look at it and get something from it. Everything in his life, everything you see, if you're wise, you can gain some knowledge from it. But on the other hand, the eyes of a fool are on the ends of the earth, which is Solomon's contrasting way of saying he'll never get it. He's looking out to the horizon and he doesn't get it. 
A wise man just looks at whatever's right there in front of him, and he'll gain knowledge, he'll gain understanding. Whatever he's going through right here, right now, he's gaining understanding, he's gaining experience, he's gaining knowledge. But a fool just never can get it, and therefore his eyes are always out to the ends of the earth because he just can't see it when it's right there in front of him. A foolish son is a grief to his father and bitterness to her who bore him. We have already looked at that verse. Verse 26, it is also not good to find the righteous nor to strike the noble for their uprightness. This is one of Solomon's it's not good phrases where he describes circumstances that don't fit the qualification of being good, of being wise, of being an intelligent way to be. This word fine means like a ticket. If you get a ticket, it has a fine attached to it. He's saying it's not good to find the righteous. If the righteous are doing right, if they're doing good, that's not only good for them individually, that's good for a society, that's good for a kingdom, that's good for people. Why would you find somebody? Why would you punish them for the good that they are doing? And don't strike a noble for their uprightness. A nobleman, a prince, somebody who rules over people who it's implied here is doing that justly, is doing that uprightly, is being fair, is being good to people, you wouldn't punish him. Why would you strike him? He's doing good. So the principle that Solomon is laying out here is if you do what's good, if you do what's righteous, you shouldn't have to fear being punished, being fined, or being struck If you just go through your life by doing the next right thing, then you shouldn't fear the authorities. Mm -hmm. But, by contrast, he has told us over and over again that a fool is going to get into all kinds of trouble. And that ultimately, as he said earlier, he's going to send a cruel messenger after somebody who's doing that kind of wickedness and causing that kind of trouble. So it's just wiser, it's just better, it's just smarter to live your life in righteousness and uprightness, and then you don't have to fear fines or striking by the authorities. You don't have to fear punishment. And then let's finish on the two verses that we already looked at tonight, but I don't think we can be reminded of this too often. In fact, I think it would be a good idea for you to kind of tattoo it to your forehead so that every time you look in the mirror, you have to read this because it's just not just really good advice, but it's sane advice that will give you less stress, that will help you live this life in a more God-fearing and appropriate God-representative way, restrain your words. Solomon's way of saying, shut up. What words, what's going on in your head right now, which words of yours are really so important that everybody else needs to partake of them? I mean, really, what's going on in your head that's worth sharing with everybody? People who talk too much are the people who overshare stuff that just doesn't need to be shared, stuff that they could have kept in their own head, and you would have been just as well off. So Solomon says, if you restrain your words, that's knowledge, real wisdom, real understanding of how you take care of people, how you build people up how you encourage people, how you live with people, how you abandon the quarrel. All of that is just learning to restrain yourself, control yourself, control your tongue, control what you say, 
And that is what real knowledge is. He who has not a hot head but a cool spirit is a man of understanding. And even a fool, when he keeps silent, is considered wise. And when he closes his lips, he's considered prudent. So Solomon's wisdom at the end of chapter 17 is just, look, do you want to appear intelligent? Do you want to look like somebody who is attractive to other people? Then watch your mouth and control yourself. Now, he's been driving that. He's been driving that point. He's been saying it over and over again. I hope at some point some of us will let that sink in and go, okay, it's probably better for me to just control my tongue. Questions? One of the best compliments I've ever heard given about another person was when Elder Ward was described as a man who took a lot of secrets to the grave with him. Mm Mm-hmm. That's a pretty nice thing to say about Yeah, you knew you could trust him. Anything else? All right. Well, then say goodnight to the Internet congregation. Goodnight. Goodnight, Gayla. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.